All right, folks, good evening. Have a seat. It's good to see you. And if you have a Bible, let's get after it. Open to James chapter 1. We are going to be in this uh, book for the next six weeks, actually five weeks. We're going to have six weeks of this midweek fellowship block. But let me give you a little overview of what we are going to be doing for these six weeks is we're going to work through James, which has five chapters. We're doing something that probably in about 10 minutes I'm going to think is uh, foolish. We're going to do a chapter a night. And so if we don't get through James chapter 1 at 7.30, we're just going to stop. Um, And we'll pick up at chapter 2. It's beneficial to really kind of go really slow through the Bible at times. And then at times it's beneficial to go a little bit quicker. And for this midweek fellowship, we're going to be looking at the message of James, James from a more panoramic view. So we're going to, over these six weeks, look at the five chapters of James. Obviously, there's one more week, week in there. And so what we're going to do is uh, Logan Copley is going to do a biography message teaching on the life of Martin Luther and why that is important, in particular in the middle of a study on James, is because as we are studying Romans on Sunday mornings, which is the epistle that was really instrumental in, in Luther, this Catholic monk discovering the gospel in 1517, 500 years ago. Romans, in particular Romans 1 verses 16 through 17 and Romans 3, 21 through 26 was like the fuse that lit Martin Luther to rediscover the gospel, whereas at that time in the Catholic Church and still to this day to to a lesser degree, but certainly it's part of the doctrine of the Catholic Church today, is this false doctrine that we are saved by our works to some degree, what we do. And Luther read Romans and he discovered the the true gospel, he rediscovered the gospel of grace that we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone and works flow from that. Well, later on, Luther read James, which seems to, on the surface, possibly contradict the message of Romans. And in fact, next week, Robert's going to teach on uh, James chapter 2, which is really the dicey. It's kind of the controversial chapter, so I left it for Robert. And Um, And where it says that we're saved by our works. And so what's going on there? And Luther called James, in his understanding at the time, the epistle or the letter of straw. He didn't like it. He didn't think it could stand up to itself. And he he actually uh, wrote that he thought maybe it shouldn't even be in the Bible. Well, we'll learn as we go through this how Luther was wrongly understanding the message of James and how the message of James is not contradictory to the rest of the New Testament, in particular Romans or the gospel, but how it is about a living faith that together this idea that saving faith, which is a gift from God, is nothing we bring to the table, if it is truly genuine, will produce a life of obedience to, Lord willing, an ever-increasing degree in the Christian's life. So after chapter 2, Logan Copley, the resident Crosspoint scholar, is going to do a biography sketch on Luther, which is appropriate because this is also the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so Logan has a cool beard, kind of like a Reformed scholar should. I don't know if he's going to shave the top of his head like Martin Luther did, But we'll see how it goes in a couple weeks. Um, All right, well, let me pray. And then we're going to just kick in. We're going to dive into James chapter 1. Lord, thank you for your kindness to us, for your word 
Lord, what a privilege that we can gather as your people and study and open our Bibles without fear. We're very aware that we have many brothers and sisters around the world who do not have this great privilege. So may we, may we study tonight in light of that with them on our hearts and our minds, not taking for granted the, uh, the privileges that you have given us in this time and place. And may we be good stewards of them. May the blessings that you've given us as a church and as a people not terminate on us, but may it make us more, form us more into the image of Christ so that we can be better stewards of the gospel to an onlooking world, so that we might take the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. As we look at James 1, and as we start to study through James at, at, a, at a quick pace, may it help us to understand better the imperatives of Scripture, that although we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, that the faith that saves, true faith, is not alone. It will produce works. In fact, it must produce works. And, and so, Lord, may we be people that are fruitful because our hearts have truly been made new and we feel the weight of the commands of Scripture. So help us as we study. Give us ears to hear and give us wisdom and, and joy and discernment. And uh, we pray all these things in, in the name of Jesus, relying on your Holy Spirit that fills your people, that's in this room now with us, ministering to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, let's just start reading in James chapter 1. We may not make it through the whole chapter, uh, but that's okay. I'll leave it to you to read. And again, this is just an overview. So clearly, we will be breezing over some incredibly important um, issues that we could settle down on and work through for, for weeks and weeks and weeks. But let's start in James chapter 1. James. Well, let's stop there. James. <laughs> Who is James? James is the half-biological brother of Jesus, okay? He was Mary and Joseph's son. There, it, there's another James that's mentioned in the New Testament that was James the disciple. This is James the just, the half-brother of Jesus. We know it's this James and not the other James because the other James was, was, was martyred earlier on. So this James is the half-brother of Jesus. Now, this is really important because in the New Testament, we have 27 books, 27 letters in the New Testament, gospels and letters. And one of the, really er one of the important things that uh, we need to know as Christians is how the Bible came together. So in the Old Testament, you have 39 books that were written by prophets that were men that were raised up by God. They were leaders of Old Testament Israel. And there's really almost no doubt of the canonicity, and that word canon is just a word that means measuring stick, and it's a word that means the, what should be in the Bible for our purposes. There's no doubt about the canonicity of the 39 books in the Old Testament, because God was working through one nation, raised up these prophets, these prophets spoke, the people uh, accepted the word, although clearly they didn't always obey it, but there's no debate as to what book should be in the Old Testament. The 27 books in the New Testament over the centuries, to some degree, at varying points, has been debated. And the test, the reason why we, as American Christians, 2,000 years later, can be very confident that what we have as the 27 books of the New Testament are what God intended to be in the New Testament, is because the early church used this test of apostolic authority. So all of the New Testament books are either written by an apostle who is one of the 12 that 
uh, was with Jesus, one of the 12 disciples, minus uh, Judas at the end. He falls away and Matthias is added. All of the books of the New Testament are written by one of, not all of the apostles wrote books, but the, the, the New Testament comes through the hands of the apostles or one of their ministry associates or Paul, who then becomes an apostle later on when Jesus comes in the test of an apostle in the New Testament is one of the 12 that Jesus sends out that were witnesses of his resurrection. They had a special one-time authority, and they were the mouthpieces through whom God brought his New Testament word. So it's those 12, Paul, who's added later, and then the half-brothers of Jesus have this, they're not apostles, but they had a type of authority because they were so close to Jesus, James and Jude, the second-to-last book in the New Testament, their writing as the half-brothers of Jesus and as, the, as leaders in the church in Jerusalem uh, passed this test of authenticity. And so, very early on, as early as just, uh, just five or six decades after the death of Christ, you already have circulating in the church a set list of the 27 books that we know of now as our, our New Testament. So very early on in the life of the church, it was kind of a settled issue. Not that there weren't controversies, not that there weren't councils, not that there weren't people that decided things and there were some her- heretical things you know, floating on the edges, but very early on, there was a real clear consensus about these 27 books. And so James is, you, you can be very, very confident. So this Easter, when the Discovery Channel runs a, 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 a television show about the Gospel of Thomas, but how maybe it should be in the Bible, don't be dismayed or shaken by that. So James is the half-brother of Jesus, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. A little phrase there, the 12 tribes of the dispersion is really interesting and, and I think helpful for us to think about. What is that word dispersion? Well, it comes from a word diaspora, which just literally means scattering or, or a, disp- a, a spreading out. And the word 12 tribes is kind of, it kind of has a little bit of a, a dual meaning in the New Testament. Certainly it's referring to the ethnic tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the New Testament writers use it to also refer to just all Christians in the church. And so this is really the interesting thing that I want you to see, just kind of the providential hand of God. In about 700 years before Christ, Israel is one nation, okay? They are Israel and, and united, and you know the whole history of the Old Testament has happened. God has chosen Abraham. He's made a nation through him. Um, you know They were uh, obviously in captivity in Egypt. Moses rescues them out of Egypt. They're in the promised land. Uh, they're rebellious. They want a king. God gives them a king, David, Solomon, others, and eventually the kingdom splits, and now they're vulnerable. So there's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And at about 700 BC, the northern kingdom of Israel gets taken away into captivity by the Assyrians and just taken away. And then about 150 years later, the southern kingdoms of Israel, of Judah, get taken captive by Babylon. And what happens is they then get taken to Uh, Babylon, and now the Jewish people are out of the promised land, out of Jerusalem, out of the Canaan land, and they're scattered. And that's what James is referring to here, is that God's people in the Old Testament, because of their disobedience, are scattered all throughout the known world at the time. 
Well, by the time Jesus comes 700 and 500 years later after those two exiles, and then the Messiah comes and he, he dies and resurrects and ascends to heaven, and then he begins the church. The disciples are there in Jerusalem. These early Jewish disciples who are in Jerusalem, the 12 disciples and the 120 that were gathered together there in the upper room, and the Holy Spirit falls. Peter preaches the sermon. And did, on the day of Pentecost, there were all of these people from other nations. You know how there were all these other languages and they spoke in tongues? Well, all of those people from these other nations were Jews that were gathered from this dispersion, from this scattering of the Jews centuries before. And so what happens is they're coming back to the feast in Jerusalem from all over the known world at the time, from you know, Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and all these places, and they're gathering together, and the fire from heaven falls, Peter preaches the gospel, and now all these ethnic Jews who speak other languages and part of other cultures hear the good news of the gospel, and now immediately the church is birthed and it's kind of got like an instant missions network. So the people go and now, now they go back and there's little pockets of Christians in all of these places that then all the way through the book of Acts figure to be places that are kind of little hubs of the gospel where the apostles Peter, Paul, and the others will go and start first and plant churches there. So do you see, so the point I'm making, that was a long point to say that the dispersion the disobedience of the Jewish people in the Old Testament and their subsequent rebellion and punishment and scattering as a result of God's judgment upon them, 500 years later, God ends up using for his good as a kind of instant missions network that then fuels the spread of the gospel in the Roman Empire. That, is anybody else excited about the providence of God in that? I mean, that's awesome. That's awesome. Another thing that God did is around 300 or so, there was, some, there was an Egyptian king that came and, and carried off a bunch of uh, Jewish people from Jerusalem. Around 300 BC took them. They all learned Greek in Egypt. And then now there's a bunch of Greek-speaking Jews who then become, that becomes the universal language and, and the New Testament gets spread because God is using the sin of his people and his judgment a couple hundred years later, to be part of the fuel for his plan for the advancement of the gospel. Praise God. So what could be going wrong in our world today that somehow God has some providential plan, right? And beyond that, just what about your own life? What could God be up to in the midst of some difficult situation? I think of that um, old, beautiful hymn by William Cooper, who was actually schizophrenic and mentally ill, and he was a hymn writer back in the 1700s, and he was a friend of John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And he wrote the hymn, God Works in a Mysterious Way. And it was actually a song and a poem, and there's that phrase in there, I'm gonna mess it up, I shouldn't have started going down this road because I'm about to embarrass myself, but it says something along the lines of, um, uh, judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And so 500 years before, in the judgment of God's people, a frowning providence, God is hiding a smiling face because he's setting up the known world at the time for the expansion of the gospel so that James writes now to the Christians who are scattered all throughout and the gospel is fueled. Praise God.
Okay, let's keep going. We're at verse 3, or 2. All right, I've got to pick up the pace. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Okay, let's just stop there real briefly and just look at this word testing, which is, is I think, really an important word. It, there's going to be a contrast here when we move down a little bit. We're, we're going to see where James speaks about temptation as opposed to the testing that's going on here. And this is probably one of the more well-known verses in the book of James, where he is telling us, he's telling these Christians, he's telling us now that God is behind. He has redemptive purposes for the testing that he puts his people through. And this word testing, it, it, it's a word that, that means not that God is up to something to kind of, you know, see if we will fail to mess with us a kind of capricious God who's, who's there just to make things difficult on us. It's, that's not it at all. The, the word in the original language has this clear sense of a means to prove a criterion or a test by which something is proved or tried. And we see this, this word woven into the New Testament passages that speak about God testing us. In, in fact, um, in 1 Peter uh, it, it, this word figures prominently in 1 Peter 1, um, verse 7. Peter says, So then, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then later on, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial or test when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering so that you may be also able to rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so we see this, again, the sovereignty of God that scatters his people and then the sovereignty of God that intentionally tests his people. But notice what's going on here. What's the purpose of this test? To produce steadfastness in his people and then what does that steadfastness do? In verse 4, we see a progression. The test, the fruit of the test is steadfastness. What is the effect of the fruit of the steadfastness? That Christians, that God's people would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I don't think that that verse means, when it says perfect there, that that intends to convey that we will reach some sort of sinless perfection here in this life. There are some notable Christians that have believed that in the history of the church. I don't think that's the case. I think that word perfect there, uh, it, it really means, uh, I think we could say, it means, it means perfect, but in the sense of being fully developed, complete, whole, uh, a sanctification level where we, and we ultimately never reach that until we are standing before the Lord. And do you know that if you're a Christian, that God has guaranteed that that will happen in your life. God has made a promise that he will bring that about. So let this encourage you. Romans, Romans chapter 8. I know we're in James and you know, it all just kind of eventually winds back to Romans at some point. I know that. I get made fun of a lot about that. But I mean, if you're going to end up somewhere, Romans is a great place to end up. Look at Romans chapter 8. 
verse 28, very well-known verse, but I want you to see something that ties into what's going on here, that God's testing his people for some ultimate purpose. And then I want you just in the back of your mind to be thinking about maybe, you know, the most challenging thing that you're facing right now, the thing that is stressing you out or the thing that you dread, whatever may be going on in your life that is difficult. And I want us to be able to redeem our perspective of that. This is what Paul says. And we know, Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now listen to verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Well, now verse 29, there's a lot going on in verse 29. And the point I'm trying to make here is just a very specific one. I don't want to talk about those words foreknew and predestined, although they're very important. But let's just for the sake of argument right now say that regardless of what you believe about the word foreknew or predestined, that whatever that saying is, it's talking about an end state of the Christian. And Paul says that God for whatever his purposes, has predestined the end state of the Christian. And what is the end state of the Christian? To be conformed to the image of his son. And so God is saying there that I have done this. I've, whatever I've done in the life of a Christian, in predestining them, calling them, awakening them to the gospel, it's for the purpose of guaranteeing not just that they will reach some, not like just he beams us up and puts us there telepathically, but that we go through this transformation process and it will happen to be transformed to the image of his son. And then in verse 30, he speaks of the future in the past tense. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I don't feel particularly glorified all the time, but the Bible speaks of Christians as already glorified. And part of the way that God brings about the end state that he has guaranteed that we will get to is by the testing and the proving that we are enduring in this life. I'm going to pause here for just a moment and see if there's any just quick comments or questions about just this part before we move on. But let me just give you a little picture. Um, a couple years ago, I used to go to the gym with Paul Fincher and Garrett Gross until one of them started getting lazy and didn't want to go anymore. And, um, I, <laughs> um, and I used to get there earlier than they did. And um, there was this man that would, he had a son. It was, it was just, it was the most precious thing. He had this son who had severe, severe, severe cerebral palsy. And he was in a a wheelchair, and he would take his son to the gym, and he would get him out of the chair, and he would just stretch on his, on his sweet boy's body, and just and it would cause this child pain. And he was a, probably a teenager he looked to be, and he couldn't really do anything on his own, and his dad would stretch him. And from across the gym, you could just hear this boy moaning in pain as his dad was inflicting it on him intentionally, for his good. And I thought, that's, that's a beautiful picture of, of this verse in James, that God is testing and proving his people to produce in them something that will endure to that day because his purposes are greater than our temporary comfort. 
And that's, that's the sovereign God that we serve. And so, so think about you know, what you may be facing and think about redeeming your perspective on God's hand in that. On the heels of a God who scatters his people to set up the gospel 500 years later. Uh, praise God. Any comments, questions? Thoughts? All right, well, I'll pause along the way. Um, so if you have anything, okay, let's keep going. Paul says in verse, in verse, I mean, James, back to James in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Just real briefly here, we could spend a lot of time on this little few verses. Um, I, I, I think we are prone to sometimes cherry-pick um, verses in the Bible and just sort of use them as kind of like little like fortune cookie sayings. And I, this is one of those verses I think we're prone to do. I think... I think that sometimes we approach this verse as just kind of a standalone promise that we go to and, oh, if we lack wisdom, we can ask God for it and he will give it to us, almost kind of like it's a little rabbit's foot or kind of like it's a little transaction. I think clearly we should come to God and later on in James he says we have not because we ask not, we should come to God. He's a good father, the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, I forgot to mention at the beginning that James is the half-brother of Jesus is the, the, the book of James is really like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. There's all sorts of parallels between James and Matthew, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But we come to um, James here where he says that we should ask about wisdom as a kind of transaction with God when I think probably what's going on, uh, why I brought up the Sermon on the Mount was that, that although, yes, we can go to God and ask him, if we ask for bread, he will not give us a rock, he's a good father, but I think what James is doing is he's setting up the contrast between the foolish life that doubts God, that doubts that God is good, and the wise life that obeys God. So there's a kind of contrast here. And so I think we, we make a mistake if we zero down into, we just kind of parachute into James 1, 3 through 5, and see that as a kind of promise to get us, like a get-out-of-jail-free card when we don't know what's going on and we just want God to help us. Clearly we can call out to, cry out to God in the midst of our trouble. Psalm, the Psalms are full of that type of prayer to God. But I think what's going on here is James is talking about a posture of life that he is pointing his readers to, a life of wisdom that knows who God is and, and is postured in, in a, a heart of obedience. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a, a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And one of the things that's going to become a real uh, kind of theme woven into James is, is uh, the faith, the true faith of a Christian is not going to categorize people. And in James chapter 2, and I think a little bit in James 3, there's going to be this real distinction between how you treat people, the rich and the poor. And James is going to really attack the type of faith that plays favorites, and he's going to say that that's a sham faith. 
And so we just need to, I think that as we read this, we want to constantly analyze our own hearts that if, if, if we're wealthier, that Paul, or James is taking aim at anything in us that would want to put our hope in our riches. And he's wanting to encourage the, the lowly brother to, uh, to, to not uh, turn inward, but to, to realize that Jesus is enough. Okay, verse 12 through 15, and then we'll hunker down there, and uh, maybe you might have some questions on this. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So now he's going to set up the contrast between, remember the test that God was clearly behind in verses 3 and 4? Now is going to be contrasted with temptation that James is going to warn us to stay away from. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so I want us just to kind of see the, the contrast here between, between the tests of verses 3 through 4 or 5 and the temptations of the verses what we just read. And the, the challenge is that sometimes it's hard to discern, you know, what, 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 what it is that you're facing. Tests come from God. Temptations come from within and are piggybacked, piggybacked on by our enemy, the devil. And so what did, what did it say about tests? It said, what, did, what were the words that it used? It said that it produces steadfastness and perfection. We know that's not sinless perfection in this life, but ultimately glorification, and lacking nothing. And it's always from God. The temptations that he speaks about here in uh, verses uh, th- 12 through 15, notice the progression of the temptation. It says here that there, there's a kind of, of a, a, a progression that is interior. It's inside of us. So what is it? It says here that, that we have this desire. Maybe you might have a, a King James version or uh, an older version of the Bible. It might say lust. Is that what it says? Uh, this lust inside of us. And when that desire is then drawn away, it conceives, it, it, it mates with something, and sin comes, and then death and there's a kind of progression. But what's interesting here is notice where it starts. Have you ever heard the phrase, the devil made me do it? Right? Well, where's the devil in verses 12 through 15? He's just kind of waiting on the side because what's going on, it starts inside the person, which should inform our doctrine of what it means to be human and fallen. 
We are by nature sinners. By nature. The, the, tempt, the thing that leads us to death begins within us because we are all children of Adam. We are by nature sinners. There's something in us that then we're, we're lured away by some bait of Satan or some trick of the enemy or whatever, but there's something in us because we're children of Adam that predisposes us to sin, which is going to set up, I think, the rest of uh, chapter 1, which we're going to get into in salvation, and it really is an important doctrine, one of the most important doctrines in all of the Bible, and it is an understanding of the doctrine of the fallenness of man. Now, I don't really care where you are politically, but when we watch a president give a speech, and I have, I, this is nothing about Trump or President Obama, or, but they all, and I think they should do this. I mean, I, I, think, I, I think I understand what they're doing. But a political speech that's optimistic about mankind's ability to improve itself spiritually is a fool's errand. Do you, do you, do you get that? I mean, we are completely unable to do anything apart from God's sovereign, intervening grace in us because we are fallen. Have, have you guys, have, it's been a while since I've done the fourfold state of man. Let me just do this real quick. I think this is helpful. And I read this years ago, and, and I think it really helped me understand um, mankind. Augustine was this early church father in the 300s, and this is the fourfold. He came up with just looking at the four, fourfold state of, of man. Mankind in his first state is pre-fall. This is Adam and Eve. And he is able not to sin. Okay, that's Adam and Eve. But of course they were able to sin. And so they, they, they did sin. And then man in his second state is in the state of the fall. And he is not, this is really important. Because this is where the world is before Christ. This is where we were before Christ. We are not able not to sin. It doesn't mean that God can't use lost people for good purposes. But we are not able to not disobey God and do anything on our own to make ourselves right with God. This is the state of fallen humanity. And then the third state of man is the state of grace, or after salvation, the reborn state of man. He is now able, he's really kind of back to the, to the first state, but it's marred a little bit. He's able not to sin, but we know that he is still able to sin. But he's able now to resist because the Spirit of Christ res resides in him and he's able to say no to sin. And the final state of man is the state of glory, and the good news of the state of glory is it's even better than the first state because now he is not able to sin at all. And this is where we're headed. In fact, glory, the end state of man is more glorious than the first state of man because not only are we able not to sin, we are not able to sin. There will be no more sin there. And so, in fact, this is what the theologians call Felix culpa. It's a Latin word meaning happy, like Felix the cat. 
happy. If your name is Felix, you have an awesome name. It means happy. Happy fall. It means that we are happier. Mankind is happier in his end state than he was in his first state. And so we should rejoice that God even allowed the fall because he redeems us and he finally puts us in a place where we are actually better than we were. But here's the point. Here is all of man before, and this, the sin is in us, and even us, most of us in this room, are in the third state of man, and even though we are able not to sin, we still have the residue of our fallen state in us that is wreaking havoc on us, and our new man is at war with to, to finally and fully vanquish, and that process is called sanctification. We should, just, we should just be humbled as we read James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Any questions, comments? I know that's super encouraging. We're talking about how prevalent sin is in our lives. Any comments, questions? Quiet crowd tonight. I thought you had your hand on the trigger. Okay, give it to me, Joseph. Yeah, I mean, I haven't like zeroed in on that word of that verse real intently, but I would just instinctively go to Romans 5 and see it as a spiritual separation from God. And like Romans 5, 12, where he says, therefore, just as sin, because you see the progression in Romans 5, a similar progression here, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I think what's in mind there is just really the universal separation of God from men. And so it's spiritual separation from God that eventually will result in, is, has a, causes a consequence, physical death. But I, I think that what's in view there is, is separation from God, but in a more acute sense, complete inability to do anything on your own to make yourself right with God. Uh, but I think we could, I think as I'm just talking here and thinking about your question, Joseph, I think that in the life of a Christian who's now been made alive, this process is still at play where we're alive now, we're no longer dead, right? And so the desire might conceive and bring about sin. We give ourselves over because we still, James 3, 2, the chapter that you're teaching on says that we all still stumble in many ways. And so we will sin, and that will bring death. It doesn't mean that we are now, we've lost our salvation, but it brings, it brings the, the shadow of death. It brings death to God's work in our life, and it, it kills, it stunts our sanctification. And then we have to read Hebrews, which has all these warning passages that I think are real, that I think are meant to be a real warning to a Christian, that if you do this, you will die. And I think we can't read that and say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I could never sin unto death. I think we have to read that and realize that the means by which God preserves his people from death is to warn them that sin will bring death if they give themselves over to it. It's kind of like the analogy that I think I've used before that, you know, if I, if I, if I had a house on, right on the interstate and the interstate and, and I told my kids, 
don't go out and play in the, in, the, in the street because if you're out there kicking the ball in the street and a car comes by and it runs you over, you will die. Well, that's re- if, they, if they go out on the street, they will die. And I think that's the way some of these warning passages are, uh, is that if, you, if, if God uses the means of the warning to be the means of preserving grace for his children. So maybe there's a little bit of that going on in there. You know, does that answer your question or is that, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's keep going. Anybody else have anything? All right, let's keep going. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change or or shadow due to change. Of his own will, verse 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now let's stop there and let me just kind of set up uh, what Robert is going to get into next week in James chapter 2 is James chapter 2 is going to talk about what seems to be on the surface that we are saved by our works. I kind of set that up at the beginning and it seems to be kind of a controversial sticking point and seems to counter what what Paul says in Romans. And so we might think, wait a minute, is James in James chapter 2 advocating a kind of salvation by works? Well, clearly he's not doing that, and we get the cue that he's not going that direction when we look at verse 18 where he's showing us that he understands salvation just the way the rest of the Bible does and the way Paul does and the other Bible writers when he says that it's God who brings us forth by his word of truth, that phrase, the word of truth, meaning, I think, referring to the gospel. So God does it. He brings us forth. And this is just coming on the heels of how sin brings death. And then in verse 18, or 18, he's saying that God brings life through his gospel, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And so I think there's a, there's a hint there that James is laying down that I think is going to help us solve the potential controversy of James 2 by James telling us that no, we are not saved by our works. We're not justified by our works. We are brought forth. We are made alive by the word of God, by God's sovereign will. And then he continues in verse 19. He says, this is what the uh, life that has been made alive by God should look like. And this is, this is really, really convicting. Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Again there, uh, verse 21 is, is pointing us to this sovereign activity of God in the life of a believer who in their natural state before God acts on them is dead in their sins and not able not to sin. And this phrase, the implanted word, is, is a, a really a, a picture of, of this scene in Jeremiah 31 where the prophet Jeremiah is speaking about how God, God is speaking through Jeremiah, and he's telling him how he will administer the new covenant. So let me read Jeremiah 31. This is God speaking 
to rebellious Israel saying, this is how I am going to establish the new covenant with you. And and in Jeremiah 31, God is speaking to Israel and he's speaking about, he's really pointing towards the cross and Christ and his work and the gospel and sovereign grace. And he says in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in them, within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so do you see what God, in when he's speaking there about the house of Israel, I think he's even prophetically speaking about true Israel that is believers in Jesus after Christ comes, and he's saying, this is how I'm going to save people. I'm not going to shake the etch-a-sketch and try again and see if this time they will obey me, but all of this has been pointing to, and all of the laws that I've given, all of the old covenant that I've given is actually set up. The Messiah that will come and fulfill the law for these fallen people and will rise again, take the punishment for the law, will defeat death, will have the keys of victory, and then I will take my spirit, my law, and I will implant it in them. This is how I'm going to save people. I'm not going to wait for them to obey me. While they're dead, I'm going to implant my word in their hearts, make them alive, and give them a heart so that they can obey me. And that's what he says here in James chapter 1, that we are to receive the implanted word of God with meekness, which is able to save our souls. God does it. That's the point James is making. God does it. And this is what the life of a person who God has done that should look like. He continues in verse 22, but... Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and at once he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So let's step back and then we'll see if you have any comments or questions. Do you see the progression that James has made here? He's saying that you're dead in your sins. God has brought you forth by his will but this is what a heart that has truly been implanted with God's word looks like. It must be a heart that to some degree does, obeys, of course not perfectly, but obeys God and grows, and then God will send trials to strengthen that heart in obedience and strip away the filthiness and the rampant wickedness from them so that they grow more and more into the image of Christ. And James, in James 1 and James 2 and through the rest of this letter, is taking aim at nominal Christianity, which is prevalent in the South. Well, I'm a Christian because 
Um, you know, I was baptized when I was seven at a VBS. We're fine, but are, are we actually obeying God? Is, is our faith actually bearing any fruit? That's the point that James is making, and that's the point that all of us need to, to, uh, to really hear, every single one of us. I, we all need to hear this. Is, is my life bearing fruit? And we'll talk a lot about that in the coming weeks. Is, is my faith working? It's not, am I saved by my faith, but is my faith genuine, and does it actually produce progression in the faith so that I would be a, a doer of the word? So this is a good book for a church like Crosspoint because we love the gospel of grace and we love to, to, to herald the good news of what Christ has done and it's all Jesus and we're saved by grace and the problem is with churches that love the gospel like we do and we love the sovereign grace of God and we love the, to, to herald the truth that we're not saved by our works but by Christ's work, we can, we can major so much on that beautiful truth that we inadvertently miss the imperatives of the gospel. We miss the commands that come with the Christian life. And we can talk so much about grace that we forget the clear imperatives of James chapter 1 and James chapter 2. So there's two ditches that people can fall into. One ditch is the ditch of legalism. And that's, right, that's justification by works. I think we all know that. We all, we're all probably familiar with that flavor. But the other side of the ditch that people fall into is a, a, a theological phrase called anti-nomianism. What does that mean? I know that's fancy. That, that and about five bucks will get you a terrible cup of coffee at Starbucks. That and about... A dollar six will get you a much better cup of coffee at McDonald's, which for my money, by the way, has the best coffee in. Joseph Davis agrees with me. I don't, all you millennials that waste your money on that Starbucks junk, I don't, I don't, you just want whatever. We'll, we'll talk later. But this fancy word, right, just means anti or against. Gnome, this word meaning law or against the commands. And so what it is, is people, here's the point, here's the charge, here's the, here's the uh, label that churches like us sometimes get, is that we so major on the grace of the gospel and the finished work of Christ that we're allergic to anything in the Bible that says you must do this. And we major on the finished work of Christ, which is a wonderful thing to major on, but we're lopsided because we don't also then read James where it says that faith without works is dead. And you can read Piper and Calvin and Spurgeon and all these guys that heralded the free grace of God, but now you have to get up from your pew and you actually have to fight sin like your life depends on it because it does. And so there's these two ditches. One is, you know, the legalism of saved by your works. And this is just falling off on the other side of the road 
missing the gospel just as much, realizing that no, this is what James is, is taking aim at. You can't say, we can't say that we believe in the beauty of the free grace of God and it have no actual effect in, a, uh, in our lives. That's the point of James, I think, as we work through this. Any questions, comments? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great analogy. And I think what James, I think James would agree with that. <laughs> and I think because I think that's, that's biblically true. But I think James's point, the reason the Holy Spirit inspired James to write this letter, is that if that has truly happened to you, you're, you're swimming. You're swimming now. You're up. You're and and you're and you're throwing the life vest to other people. And you're and you're. you're, you're yes, yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And James would say that somebody who claims to be alive but is still just doing nothing is deceiving themselves. And self-deception is a huge problem. Jesus says in Matthew 7, many will come to you on that day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? And he says, yeah, I never knew you. You were, you, you were doing what you considered good works was actually just your idolatry, and you never truly knew me. So great point. Yeah. Yes. Never heard of him. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so so then you know it's like it's like you know what the Christian life is like a it's like a pendulum you know like don't we all it's like you know we 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 get close to legalism and then we want to go back over to the other end. but then like I love that quote from Spurgeon but I'm like I don't want to beat people up with it I'm like yeah 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 but but let's give ourselves grace and then we can you know I just feel like I get dizzy on this pendulum and and the the Christian life is a one of balance. And don't we need each other to be balanced? Come on, man. That's why we need to be in a church. We need to know each other because we all have blind spots. We all got personality differences. We all have strengths and weaknesses. We all have good days and bad days. And God puts us together so that we kind of, we're like, we, we counterweight each other so that we don't sink the boat on one direction, you know? So yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, Rick. From Texas, by way of New Hampshire, with an Oakland A's hat. I don't understand that, but give us what you got. Say that again. Faith that is dead. I think it can take many stripes. Um, in my life, I thought I was a Christian for most of my life, and my brother kept insisting when he became a Christian that I was not a Christian because he knew what I was doing. I would say, Todd, clearly I'm a Christian. And he would say, no, you're not. I know what you're doing on Friday night. And I was, I was still a slave to sin. And I was ruled by the lust of the flesh. And I was self-deceived thinking because I had a cognitive understanding of who God was and what Jesus had done, that I was okay. And I think that there are a lot of people like that out there. 
and they think that they're okay with God because they're in a culture or they grew up in a family or they attend a church. But it's back to that William Arnault quote, you know? I mean, the difference between, it's in a supply, because I'm not, certainly we're not saying, Rick, that Christians have no sin. I mean, come on. But the Christian is taking God's side against his sin, whereas the non-Christian is taking sin's side, maybe even in a self-deceptive way, taking sin side against the dreaded God. And who can rightly see that with 20-20 spiritual vision in their own eyes? Nobody can. That's why God gives us the church. That's why he gives us, I think, membership. That's why he gives us the Matthew 18, where Jesus says, if you're sinning against, then you take it to a brother. And the church discipline, we have these sort of protective means. So faith that is dead is faith that is self-deceived that is still a slave that is still enslaved by sin and powerless to fight against it um, and the tragedy is is it's it's almost always it's it's self deception yeah. it's a good question yes yeah uh, you got to be careful which jesus too because you got lds yeah that's a great point yeah yeah yeah, try it. Amen. Yeah, it's a great point. Great point. All right, at 7.30, I thought I, I said I'd, I'd stop, so let me stop, and I think it's going to maybe start raining, and so we need to get the kids to bed, and there might be a storm coming. So, All right, next week, Robert's going to handle one of the most choppy chapters in the whole Bible. Young buck proving himself. All right, and then the week after that, Joseph is going to preach and or teach on James 3, and, oh, I'm sorry, Logan is the week after. Um, he's going to do the thing on, the biography sketch on Luther. Then we're going to take a break for spring break. We'll break, and then we'll come back for James chapter 3, 4, and, and I'll do uh, 3, 4, and I'll do 5. Robert will do 5. So listen, I want you to come. It'll be gr- a great encouragement uh, to hear these other brothers, and, um, and someday, Lord willing, they may be pastoring churches or starting seminaries in some foreign land or whatever Logan's going to do. And so uh, let's, let's come next week. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for the word of God. Uh, Lord, I think of James 3 where it says that we all stumble in many ways. There are people in this room who are beaten down by their sin and they know it and they're discouraged and they're, they're, oh, they're just beat up. Lord, encourage them and May, may life in the body of Christ spur them on. Uh, may they, as, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, may we help the weak. May we encourage the faint-hearted. But Lord, there may be people in this room uh, that need a, a swift spiritual kick in the rear. And, and maybe we're lazy and we're, maybe we're even self-deceived. There's people all across that spectrum in every church. And, and, and Lord, we're completely dependent on your Holy Spirit to do the diagnosis and to perform the surgery and to give us what we need. And you use so many means to do that. You use maybe conversations that we'll have in a few minutes after we get up and walk towards the door. You use just our eyes lighting upon a verse tonight and ingraining it in our hearts. Or you use whatever means to, to make us more like Jesus, to save some people tonight maybe that don't know you. Lord, I pray that you do this all for your glory and our joy. Bless my friends and my brothers and sisters as we go home tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.